are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Greetings, I'm Ursula Rudenberg at Pacifica Network. In the next half hour, we'll talk about the conflict in Ukraine from the Scandinavian perspective. Finland and Sweden have shown a sudden change of heart politically in the last year. Until now, neither country had plans to join North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. There was not popular support in either countries, but after the February 22 Russian invasion of Ukraine, support for joining NATO jumped, and by May of last year, Finland and Sweden had simultaneously handed their official letters of application to NATO. Just recently, Finland has encouraged Europe to send tanks to Ukraine and has speculated that it too can send some. Dr. Rehorn Niznikow is a senior political researcher at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. He joined us from Helsinki, Finland. Niznikow gives a summary of his country's troubled history with Russia. Finland shares an 833-mile border with Russia and was invaded in 1939 in what is known as the Winter War. Later in the conversation, Niznikow tells a larger story of Russia's efforts to exert influence over its neighbors and the evolution that leads up to the time we are in now, which he believes is one of permanent transformation. Niznikow traces how Ukraine has been a catalyst. He identifies two popular independence movements in Ukraine during the past 20 years that deeply affected Russia's international relations. But before all that, I started out our recorded conversation by asking him about Finland's decision to join NATO. Let's listen. Dr. Rihor Nisnikow, welcome to Ukraine 242. Thank you. Is it true that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is in fact the catalyst for Finland and Sweden to apply to become NATO members? Well, you're absolutely right. The Russian invasion was the trigger. It was a shocker because public opinion were not ready and actually didn't want to join NATO. They thought that they really have a unique position to both the European Union and also for Russia. But when Russia made this invasion, public opinion turned upside down and really dragged the political establishment along. So all political parties quickly switched their opinions on joining NATO, including the far left, which are traditionally very skeptical of NATO. So the public opinion was the main trigger and Finland was basically ready by all the necessary legislation and the Finnish army operates by all the NATO standards. So Finland was basically ready that the government can apply to get all the necessary approvals so quickly. Was there a similar process happening in Sweden? Actually, Sweden was a step behind and how quickly the process started in Finland forced Sweden to move along because they didn't want to be left out alone in the region insecure, especially given that the Swedish-Russian relations were quite rocking uh-huh. in the last decade and Sweden was always feeling insecure. There was not such a consensus there, but still majority was in favor and the government decided that they have no other option but to go along. We often think of Scandinavia as this neutral enclave that we see it as very secure. Well, this is partially true. The region was somewhat unique. 
for Sweden, that's why it was a big turnaround because Sweden was a neutral country which didn't participate in the Second World War or the First World War and was neutral basically for 150 years or something like that. But for Finland, it was a bit different. Finland, unfortunately, was invaded and it had a long war alongside the Second World War with Russians after the Soviet invasion. And because it lost the war against Russians, it had political arrangement up until the collapse of Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, for Finland, there was euphoria and they thought that they really have a unique position to exploit and continue benefiting from this unique trade and economic ties with Russia. And I think this was one of the biggest mistakes and somewhat short-sighted wrong assumption that Russia became normal. Is there a general sense with Sweden and Finland that you will be joining NATO? Yes. Even though there are problems with Turkey? Yes, there is a confidence it will be done, maybe with a minor delay. For Erdogan, it will be a shot in his own leg if he stops this process. And I think for Erdogan, it's uh, about power status. To create a perception among Turkish public that Sweden yields to Turkish demands. So it's just that he can show that Turkey is being listened and followed. Mm -hmm. Is Finland losing something if it joins NATO in terms of gas or electricity, or has that already been lost with the embargo? It has been lost, but it has been lost even before things turned rocky after the Crimea 2014 sanctions. Because after Finland joined the European Union in '95, its economy reoriented on the European markets and integrated in the European markets. So trade with Russia really collapsed, just fully disconnected. Mm -hmm. In February of this year, when Russia invaded Ukraine, were you shocked? I mean, you're a scholar of this whole area and have been watching it very closely. Were you taken by surprise like everybody else? Yes. I didn't expect them to launch such a full-scale invasion because as a scholar who also very closely studies Ukraine, it was for me suicidal for Russia. That's why everybody thought that it's rational enough not to start this. I expected a smaller scale escalation in Donbass, but I didn't expect them to launch this suicidal attack. You still think it's suicidal on Russia's part? Yes. If the Russian command was more professional and also a bit more lucky, they probably could have captured Zelensky and the Kiev's presidential palace and administration. But Russia didn't have capacity to occupy Ukraine. Ukrainians will fight and Russia doesn't have these resources to sustain this even for a short time, I think. It's a shock not only in Finland, but also across Europe. I think in the US being believed that yes, there will be an attack. Europeans thought that they built a stable interdependent relationship with Moscow and that Moscow will not undermine something that they've been building for 20 years. And then, yes, societies were also not prepared because they've been told by the policymakers that this is unlikely and that Russia has demands, but it just plays its own games. Despite the fact that many have been saying that Russia actually considers the West as the primary enemy, Europe thought that it lives in a post-conflict times and that it has done everything to actually eliminate such conflict and that war in Europe is unimaginable. 
That's why Europe was skeptical about the US foreign policy for a long time, skeptical about NATO, but now it faces the cost of this, that actually it's not over and they totally misread Russia. So this has happened. And in Finland, this is particularly important because each family remembers the winter war. It remembers the sacrifice. And that's why they are extrapolating these experiences and memory onto what Ukrainians are now experiencing. When you say the winter war, you're speaking of when Finland was invaded by Russia in the 1930s. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is a good time for us to go into the history of what you call the post-Soviet space and the push and pull of the European West and the Russian world. It's a big question. (laughs) We do see several extremely important trends. The first one is that Russian foreign policy has been more and more centered on regaining its dominance in the post-Soviet space. The countries that are still in the vicinity of Russia. Exactly. In my opinion, Russia accepted that Baltic states are not part of Russia's imperialistic agenda. Baltic countries are members of EU and NATO. Uh-huh. But the others, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, Central Asian countries, Caucasus, are seen in Moscow as a part of their own backyard. So they really don't want to see any of these countries to reorient on the European Union or China even. So since Putin came to power, his agenda, his policies was oriented on bringing them into the Russian orbit. And Putin used different tools. Uh, First, up until uh, 2014, it tried to compete using different cooptation tools economic leverages, different energy deals, and many of them were corrupted. We hear a lot about oligarchs. Can you explain what role do oligarchs actually play? Well, in my opinion, it's for projecting Russian influence. And if we use an example of Ukraine again, it's been a very simple scheme. For instance, Gazprom would sign a gas contract with Ukraine, but it would decline signing directly with the state, but instead would sign it with uh, one of the oligarchs or a couple of oligarchs. And the oligarchs would buy gas below market, and then they will resell the gas to Ukraine or the market price. And then they will take the difference and fund pro-Russian politicians and pro-Russian political parties, Mm. or they will become the politicians at the end of the day. This was one of the major tools how Russia brought dirty money into Ukraine, for instance, or into Armenia. And oligarchs would grow into sometimes sufficient entities trying to diversify their portfolios, trying to actually plunder Ukrainian or their local domestic economies. And then they would just try to actually become sufficient political actors. Uh, so this was some kind of a wild, uh, wild west scenario where money could buy anything as long as you could see opportunities to enrich yourself, find either sources of plundering, you try to invest them into yourself, into your projects. So Russia tried to corrupt local elites, giving them access to different schemes through oil, through access to the Russian market to make them naturally interested in more integration with Russia. The same was done politically. Russia basically guaranteed each head of state in the region that if he is pro-Russian, he will stay in power as long as he wants. 
like Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, who is still in power since taking the office in 94. So you're describing different ways that Russia has been trying to assert influence in the protection of loyal governments. For instance, Kazakhstan is another one, or Central Asian countries to a different degrees are in other cases where this worked. And we can remember how, for instance, Russia intervened in January into Kazakhstan to help President Takayev to basically keep his government in power. In the Caucasus, Armenia is very dependent on Russia as well, although the governments change all the time. But Russia doesn't care because Russia knows that Armenia has nowhere to turn. Armenia is so landlocked, it has enemies all around, it has nowhere to go. But Belarus is the biggest success, and um, Putin's agenda, his policies, similarly use these societal tools to make them interested in more integration with Russia. Try to play all these legacy cards, how good the common Soviet past was, Russian language, and so on and so forth. And they try to show the societies that it's much better to stay with Russia in the post-Soviet space. And even up till 2022, Ukrainians still had positive outlook on Russia, but it wasn't enough. The more assertive Russia would become, the more appalling, the more societies and elites will turn away from Moscow. And Ukraine is a primary example. Ukraine revolted twice, not against Russia, but against pro-Russian politicians, because they were against corruption, they wanted rule of law, good governance. For Russia, Ukraine is the biggest failure. You are listening to Ukraine 242. I'm Ursula Rudenberg at Pacifica Network, and I'm speaking with Dr. Rihor Riznikow, senior political science researcher at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. He speaks with us from Helsinki, Finland. In the wake of Finland's decision to join NATO, he is tracing the history of international relations in the area surrounding Russia and the evolution of Russia's approach. He identifies two popular independence movements in Ukraine in the past 20 years, the Orange Revolution and the Euromaidan movement, as the transformational moments that formed Russia's approach to its neighbors, which eventually has led to the war in Ukraine. When in the Orange Revolution, Ukraine rejected the candidate that had the ties to Russia, you say that this was really a shock for Russia, or it was their first indication that there were real problems for them. Is that correct? Yes. For Russia, it was taken for granted up until the Orange Revolution that if Russia anoints someone for ruling in one of the countries of a post-Soviet space, and heavily invest into his campaign, that this is a done deal. They had no competitors, really. Up until then, Russia was thinking that it has enough power of attraction to these countries and to the elites by these different means that we've been talking earlier, corruption, uh, economic and uh, societal attraction, trade, political ties, to actually beat the European Union. But in 2004, it all went wrong. And Russians, actually, or Russian government, blamed, uh, blamed the West. So they thought that it's because of the Western geopolitical ambitions that actually led to this failure. And this really led to a change of Russian policies. 
they really started to be more competitive. They really started to pay more attention to make sure that this doesn't really happen again. I think this was a turn to what was deemed EU-Russia competition in the neighborhood. Do you think that the Orange Revolution was an attempt of the West to undermine Russia's relationship with Ukraine? No, absolutely no. I think that was, again, a Russian's big mistake. Orange Revolution was driven by domestic factors. There have been a lot of pro-European Union flags back then. But if you actually ask or look at the polls, we see that the country was both for European Union and for Russian. They just wanted better economic future and they rather saw it as previous president Leonid Kuchma's attempt to extend his stay in power, which they couldn't accept. So they were actually going against autocracy, against corruption, and for better well-being or their own well-being. And external factors were very secondary for Ukrainians at that time. So it was a genuine political and popular movement that created the Orange Revolution? Yes. The rejection of the old way, so to speak? Yes, exactly. There was a lot of internal struggle in Ukraine. But then in 2014, you have the Euromaidan revolution, the pro-Western Europe movement that occurred, where, again, there was a revolt in Ukraine against the president's decision to not join trade of Western Europe. You're saying that's really was the second transformative event for Russia in terms of its relationship to Ukraine and the countries in the area? Yes, the Euromaidan revolution was Ukrainians were protesting against the decision not to sign the association agreement with the EU. Ukrainians were not happy that in the previous 10 years nothing changed in their country. That since 2004, the Orange Revolution up till Euromaidan, Ukraine was governed in the same way even if they were voting against that and protesting against that. And then Ukrainians were more thinking that it's membership in the European Union that can really help them sort out these problems. For Russia, that was a major, major defeat because Russians by that time were mimicking European institutions. They were really trying to use all possible mechanisms and measures to bring Ukraine back into the Russian arms. They created this Eurasian Union, which was analog of European Union. It was basically made for Ukraine to join. And Ukraine rejects that this. And I think this uh, led to a total change of Moscow's approach. It basically kind of said, it's enough. We'll stop playing games. We'll just take what belongs to us. We'll just use force. Russia became really assertive, not only towards Ukraine or the countries which wanted to join the EU, which is Moldova, Georgia and Ukraine, but also towards its own allies. Belarus started to face much more difficult, stricter treatment from Moscow. What I hear you saying is the Russian response was then to become more militaristic, to maintain control? Yes. With Euromaidan, Ukraine government really turned away from Russia and turned towards Europe. Yes. But it's not actually that much that uh, Ukrainian government became more pro-European. We see that it's actually Moscow's actions and Ukrainian society's actions that forced the Ukrainian government to take a very specific route. For instance, Poroshenko, after his election, he really tried to reach out to Vladimir Putin. Just to be clear, 
Poroshenko was the president of Ukraine prior to Zelensky. Yes, Poroshenko was an oligarch who dealt with Moscow and who was a part of Ukrainian politics for a long time. So he thought that, well, I can make this backdoor deal with Moscow. I know what they want, so I'll just make the right appearances to them and they'll be happy again. And Moscow just totally rejected this. And actually, Vladimir Zelensky really followed the steps of Poroshenko. Vladimir Zelensky thought that the problem is not in Ukraine, but how the old politician dealt with Moscow, including Poroshenko, and that he, Zelensky, can come to Moscow and really show that, hey, we are friendly to you, we are happy to be friends, and so on and so forth, and we can build a pragmatic relationship. Uh, and it was actually Moscow's rejection of this, plus a position from Ukrainian society which showed that it would not accept any concessions from Zelensky to Russia. That forced him again to take this route towards Europe. But Moscow really thought that it has enough power, it has enough resources, and that's why it started just to impose sanctions and basically hybrid war campaigns and um, uh, attacks not only on Ukraine, but on other post-Soviet countries. And also with its own allies, using the Belarusian example, you just uh, show that, hey, this is our terms. No need anymore to show its benevolence since it turned aggressive towards everyone, that you don't need to show the benefits anymore. Now you have to follow them. If not, you face the consequences and the consequences in the end will be your defeat through economic collapse or, in the end, military, military defeat. An interesting point that is often forgotten now was, as you said, when Zelensky became president, he actually was very interested in working with Russia. Today we see him as this defiant character. We see him standing in front of the U.S. Congress kind of mocking Vladimir Putin and declaring that the relationship with Russia is in the past. But he did not start out that way. He started out really wanting to work with Russia, right? Yes. So in a strange kind of way, the transformation we've seen in Zelensky, he's an image of a transformation that generally occurred in the area where attempts to find ways to work with Russia had suddenly come to an end all over the place, right? Now we've really entered into a very polarized world. Is that, that's, is that correct from your point of view? Yes, exactly. This was the case. And I think we can really say that many politicians, basically the local political establishment, as well as societies, they were full of illusions about Russia. They really thought that the problem is very easily resolved, that the problem lies elsewhere. Zelensky, for two years, basically, tried to do whatever Russia really asked for and really trying to find a way to rebuild the relationship, blaming Poroshenko for all the problems in uh, Ukrainian-Russian relationships. Only up until 2021, when Putin stopped accepting his phone calls and stopped uh, even showing any willingness to see him. Because up until then, Zelensky was saying that all I need is just to see him face to face and we will resolve all the problems. Zelensky was much more negative about the West uh, in many aspects in his early days than, than to Russia. So it's really amazing now, right, to see the speech that he made in front of the U.S. Congress, saying they're partners now. Absolutely. It's a big transformation. And in my opinion, 
what is really important, actually the case of Zelensky presidency all along, is that he simply follows the electorate. This is what Ukrainians think today. And this is totally unmanageable, even, uh, let's say, a year ago. There was a steady process of Ukrainians becoming more and more pro-Euro-Atlantic, pro-NATO, pro-EU, but still many thought that Russia is a friendly country and that its problem is in uh, somewhere else. Uh, now this is a transformative moment and this will not go away. So this is how Ukraine will be for a long time. Does that apply also to the people in the eastern area, the Donbass area, where the Communist Party in Ukraine was much more sympathetic to Russia? Well, this is a good question because we do see that in Donbass, the opinion has been obviously much more favorable to Russia and less favorable to the EU and to NATO. And the ones who live on the Russian-controlled territories are living under a severe propaganda. So I think that in Donbass, opinions really differ. I think they are split. They split also on the causes of the conflict, but it's still on the same trend as the whole of Ukraine, that it still more and more becomes sure that Russia is a problem. Donbass opinion polls were sort of, a, at least the trend, was going along with the whole of the country. That they are Ukraine. Yes, pro-European. The problem now, obviously, is that many residents of Donbass escaped. Now they're living in different parts of the regions. Many of them also live in Russia. And we also have to take into account the fact that many pro-European inhabitants of Donbass left the territories in 2014-2015. And they moved to Kiev, moved to Lviv, moved to all, all across Ukraine. But they still say that they are Donbassians or that they come from Donbass. So in this respect, these people are still wanting to go back to Donbass if anything is left there and start rebuilding it. So I think if Ukraine takes back Donbass and is able to rebuild it under its control, it will face the problem that Donbass would be different to the rest of the country. But it won't be a problem. This will change fast if uh, Ukraine will be rebuilding and Ukraine governments will be based on U European standards and the country will move towards Europe, not only on words, but also by deeds. So the world really changed in 2022. Yes. And unfortunately, many didn't see the signs that the world has changed uh, somewhat uh, years before and sort of uh, sustained the illusions that we're still living in uh, pre-2014 times where all the problems can be resolved by diplomatic means and by trying to understand Moscow. Because the question was that Moscow is rational, Putin didn't really change and it's something that we are doing or something that has been done wrong that should explain Putin's uh, rhetoric Putin's behavior, and if we would understand that, we would understand Putin and resolve the problems. But the fact was very simple. It's not the rhetoric, it's that Moscow really thought that it takes what belongs to it. Ukraine belongs to us, so we take it, and that's it. These are amazing times of change. Well, thank you so much for your interview. Thank you. Have a good evening. Bye-bye.
Dr. Rehor Niznikow is a senior political researcher at the EU's Neighborhood and Russia program at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, Finland. He specializes in the European Union's Eastern Neighborhood, Russian policy in the post-Soviet space, and domestic and foreign policies in Belarus, Moldova, and Ukraine. He has been part of a Finnish government research project which examines recent European Union developments and possibilities of multilateral cooperation. The Ascension Protocols for both Finland and Sweden to join NATO were signed in July 2022. Their joining NATO must now be ratified by all of the NATO members. There are 30 countries, and so far 28 have ratified Swedish and Finnish membership. The two remaining countries needed are Hungary and Turkey. Hungary has said that its parliament will ratify their NATO membership in February, and Turkey has been holding up ratification as it tries to get concessions from Sweden Finland has said it will not join NATO without Sweden. Both countries are already in the European Union. You have been listening to Ukraine 242. I've been your host, Ursula Rudenberg at Pacifica Network, standing in for your regular host, Anne Levine. And until next time on Ukraine 242, I thank you for listening.